USA Today ran the results of a survey conducted by the American Association of Retired Persons. The survey revealed that the majority of of people 50 years old and older believe in life after death. The same statistics nearly hold up for the younger people as well. Of the people uh, surveyed, I read, uh, it was interesting, 94% of them claim to believe in the existence of an eternal God and an eternal heaven. Not quite as many were sure of an eternal hell, but we would expect that. Most believed in an eternal heaven. Uh, More than half of them said their belief in heaven had increased as they had gotten older. No doubt, the older you get, right? The more you think about life after death, only makes sense. But whether young or old, a believer or unbeliever, there is an intuitive sense of something out there beyond. Something beyond us. And books and movies that have to do with life after death gain a lot of attention, don't they? And not to, not to mention books written by people who've claimed to have had uh, a near-death experience and have returned from either heaven or hell to tell their story. Uh, The sense that we live forever has shaped civilizations, all of them, throughout human history. Even secular anthropologists have noted this unifying thought. One author cataloged Australian aborigines believe in a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns believed it was an island in the faraway east. Peruvians and Polynesians believed that they would go to live on the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo after death. The pyramids of Egypt, filled with treasures and maps and even servants put to death alongside the rich and politically powerful, gave testimony to the Egyptian belief that they would need servants and money and maps direction in the coming afterlife. Even the first century pagan Roman philosopher named Seneca once said that a person's last day on earth was the birthday of their eternity. Where do they come up with that? This unifying thought, this unifying testimony of belief in some kind of conscious existence beyond life. Well, Solomon tells us why, as he wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has implanted the truth of eternity in the heart of mankind. He's built us this way. And anybody who says they don't believe in life after death is doing nothing more than suppressing the truth just as they suppress the existence of a creator God, Romans 1.18. But for the believer... One of the great delights of Christianity, if not one of the chief distinctives, is the revelation of our God regarding life after death. Christ has left nothing to mysticism or guest war. He's left no room for the thought of limbo, some floating, endlessly state, some sort of eternal consignment to wander the earth as some disembodied spirit, to come back and haunt your house or your neighborhood as a ghost, as attractive as that might seem for a day or two before you go on. Uh, The apostle Paul wrote, to be absent from the body that is through death is to be present with whom? 
the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Jesus Christ made the amazing claim as God incarnate when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he be alive. John eleven twenty five. This is the distinction of Christianity. This is the distinctive doctrine of our faith. Many religions and isms in the world believe that when they die, they come back again and again until they get it right, ultimately becoming one with some divine consciousness or one with God. Others believe that you go on to actually become a God. Christianity says, now you go to live with God. That's what happens. You retain your distinctive personality, your unique persona, though given a perfected spirit and glorified body as we enter the new heaven ultimately and the new earth. We don't get absorbed into God. We don't become a God. We rule and reign with God. This belief is the fabric of the Christian faith. So you discover deep in the catacombs of Rome, the tombs of second century Christians who were martyred for their faith in Christ, bearing inscriptions that read with confidence their belief in life with God after death. One inscription reads, he who lives with God. Another reads, he was taken up into his eternal home. Yet another reads, in Christ, Alexander is not dead, but lives. They had simply believed the record of the apostles' teaching. Like this one from Paul who wrote to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die even better. Why? Because dying means I get to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Philippians 1, 21 and 23. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, but we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. See, for the believer, death is simply the hand that opens the doorway into heaven. So this isn't morbid thinking. This is faith rooted in the certainty of the apostles' doctrine. Amy Carmichael, perhaps you've heard of her, the famous missionary to India for many years, lived in her later years as a semi-invalid until her death in 1951. While in India, her beloved country, in her later years, she was visited by a friend who in the course of their conversation, this elderly woman said to Amy, you know, my doctor has warned me, don't ever bend over suddenly or you might die on the spot. Amy responded with a twinkle in her eye, however do you resist temptation? (laughs) This isn't kind of depressing, uh, morbid thinking. This is the expression of faith in what God has told us about life after death. No wonder the Apostle Paul, who had already himself been given a personal tour of heaven in the Spirit, no wonder he said, I would rather be there than here. Fifty years after John recorded the book of what we call Revelation, a Greek man named Aristides wrote a letter to his friend and he talked with some amazement to his friend about Christians living around him. He wrote, 
If a Christian passes from the world, they all rejoice and offer thanks to God and they escort his body to the grave with songs and thanksgiving as if he were merely setting out from one place to another place. What an interesting testimony of our faith. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps our courage about the future is not as strong as it ought to be because our view of heaven is weaker than it should be. Maybe your faith in facing the future is not deeper because your understanding of heaven is superficial. The Apostle Paul comforted the church by telling it about heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4. The Apostle Peter strengthened the resolve of the suffering believer by reminding him of heaven, 1 Peter 1. In fact, our Lord himself comforted his disciples by telling them about heaven, John chapter 14. Could it be that we don't think about and talk about enough and study enough about heaven, nearly enough? Do we really believe that soon and very soon we are going to see the king. For that reason and many more, I'm thrilled to begin with you a series of studies on the vision of John which now sweeps us into the throne room of heaven and his eyewitness account found in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We've arrived at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, he goes back to chapter 1 like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now you might notice that the verse begins and ends with the phrase, perhaps you could circle them and draw a line connecting them, this phrase, after this, meta tauta, after these things. It's a phrase that will appear often through this revelation, and it transitions the reader to a new facet, a new vision of John the Apostle a new vision indicating a new series of events. And so you could do perhaps in your own study, as I have done, I have gone and circled every time it appears in the book of Revelation after this, after this, after this. Now earlier in chapters 2 and 3, John had focused our attention on God the Son speaking to the church on earth. Now the scene shifts And the church is singing to God in heaven. So it shifts from earth to heaven, along with some rather strange creatures that we'll study later on. Uh, This, by the way, explains the absence of the church from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. The church is missing. It's absent. It's silent. By the way, this fits perfectly with the promise of Christ given to the church earlier in chapters 2 and 3, right? Where he said that the faithful church in Philadelphia, he said, I will keep you from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, Tereo ek, I will take you away out of, from the presence of, the testing that will cover the earth. 
By the way, this is the same promise delivered by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, where he writes, For God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath. Even more specifically, Paul refers to the wrath of God in chapter 1 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, where he writes, You wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 1, verse 10. This is the promise to the church age from first century Thessalonica and Philadelphia to the 21st century. We live under the promise that God's wrath will never be poured out upon the church. Not ever. Now this can't be a reference to the judgment of God at the great white throne and the sentence of eternal wrath from God, which is described in Revelation chapter 20. The church has never feared that wrath. We are not afraid of that wrath and never have been. In fact, the church will not even be standing before the great white throne in fear of God's wrath. We will actually be there judging the unbelievers who stand before the great white throne as they are given the verdict of eternal punishment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2. So what wrath from God would the church be troubled about? Would the church fear What would God desire to encourage the church in Thessalonica and Philadelphia and us by promising to take us away from, literally, you could render it, to remove us altogether out of the reach of? It is this wrath of God, this coming terror of God, which will cover the whole earth, this period of universal tribulation on earth, And the church has promised to be taken out and away, raptura, the Latin word for caught away, raptured, we will be caught away to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Now let me go further than that and just say a pre-tribulation rapture of the church is important, very important if you hope to understand and literally interpret and fully grasp the predominant force of the tribulation, which by the way covers the majority of the book of Revelation. The tribulation. It is not on preparing the church, purifying her as it were. It is to prepare Israel. I've heard it often said, you know, you, you believe, Stephen, the view, this view only because, you know, you don't want to go through it. You know, the church needs to go through the tribulation so she will be purified. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is a tragic view that undercuts our current position and standing. Even now, we are purified. Now, we are forgiven. Now, we are redeemed. Now, we are blood washed. Now, we are the bride of Christ. In fact, furthermore, that view panders to the Roman Catholic creation of purgatory without one verse of scripture to support it but still a place that has been concocted for their own religious purposes where the saints are punished the saints are purified by the fire of purgatory and then they are allowed into heaven by the directive of mary the bible actually teaches that god alone has the power of death and life heaven and hell punishment and deliverance and there is no in-between place of purification of the believer that makes him fit for heaven the believer is already fit now there is no condemnation to them who are in christ jesus romans chapter 8 verse 1 so the tribulation ladies and gentlemen is not to prepare the church for her bridegroom 
It is predominantly designed to prepare Israel for her king, to ready Israel as an ethnic people, redeemed and then receptive of their true Messiah, whom they shall look upon, the one whom they have pierced. So John writes in chapter 4, after this, that is after the church age has ended and the church is raptured, tribulation will unfold. And after we get finished singing these five hymns in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, which we'll look at carefully, uh, the tribulation period will begin. God will judge the world, but specifically Israel, who by and large will be redeemed and readied for the coming of the Lord. And you see, now that will open up our understanding of the focus of the tribulation, not on the church, but on Israel. So Israel will be seen in the tribulation as the woman bearing the male child in chapter 12. The 144,000 evangelists who are sealed and who will effectively win millions to faith of every tribe, tongue, and, and, uh, and nation. They are, they are Jewish evangelists protected by God who deliver the gospel. The focus will once again be on the temple, chapter 11. The two witnesses are Jewish men. Jerusalem is the scene of the great earthquake in chapter 11 also. The rest of her offspring, we read, are Jews who are persecuted by the Antichrist in chapter 12. The obvious Jewishness of the tribulation from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 19 is so obvious and so strong that some critics of Revelation and our literal understanding of it, uh, they claim that the book of Revelation is little more than Christianized Judaism. We can understand why. Okay, enough of that. I just wanted to explain the first two words of verse one. (laughs) After this, okay? We'll speed up here. Look, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in in heaven. Now this door will provide access for John to be transported in spirit into the third heaven. He hears the voice saying, notice your text, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After this being, after the church age. And at once, verse 2, I was in the spirit. That is, John's body is on earth. He is in his spirit, taken up to heaven, which begs another introductory question. Where's heaven? Where is heaven located? Well, the voice says what? Come up. So heaven is obviously up. We're starting easy here, okay? This is the easy part. (laughs) Well, the Hebrew word translated heaven, shamayim, means literally up or height. It's a plural word which, which could be rendered great heights or at the greatest height. The Greek word for heaven, Uranus, gives us the name of our planet, Uranus, which means an elevated place, a, a place that is highly lifted up. So heaven is a place that is raised up, elevated, I believe, far above the planets, far above our solar system. In fact, I believe with one author, who said it this way, it is at the apex, the greatest height of God's created universe. Remember, at his incarnation, Jesus Christ came down 
to the earth. And when he left at his ascension, he went up. In fact, Paul wrote, when Christ ascended, he ascended far above all the heavens. Ephesians 4, verse 10, to the very top, as it were, of the heavens. When Jesus comes again, we're waiting on this particular coming, the rapture between Revelation 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. He will descend from heaven and the church will be raptured up to meet him in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. The new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 will descend down from heaven. Satan, you remember in Isaiah 14, verse 13, boasted that he would be exalted and he would ascend, he would He threatened to place his throne on the mount and ascend above the far reaches of the north. Heaven, ladies and gentlemen, is a real place. It is located at the highest point of the universe, elevated far above the planets, beyond the galaxies, the solar systems that we have been able to discover. John is translated immediately to that place. Now, it might help to understand that the Bible teaches there are three heavens. In fact, Paul specifically said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, that he was caught up to the third heaven. So what are these three heavens? Well, the first heaven refers to the lower atmosphere that immediately surrounds our planet. It's called in your science books the troposphere. This is the heaven we, we see where the floating clouds go by and and birds chase one another. The prophet Isaiah referred to this strata, he used the word heaven, where he wrote the rain and snow come down from heaven, Isaiah 55 verse 10. David wrote that God covers the heavens with clouds preparing rain for the earth, Psalm 147 verse 8. So the first heaven is the air you breathe and the sky above, uh, which is beautiful Carolina blue. All right, let me move on. The second heaven. The second heaven spoken of in the Bible is above the first heaven. It's what we call outer space. Uh, The dwelling place of all of the planets and stars and billions of galaxies, each containing billions of celestial bodies. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks using the word heavens, where lights will be located that separate day from night, a reference to sun, moon, and stars, right? Verse 17 says, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. That would be the second heaven. The third heaven, then, would be the abode of God and the heavenly host, So we read texts like Psalm 33 where David writes, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Psalm 33 verses 13 to 14. It is here that John is transported in spirit. And listen, I say all of this to to say, and we're going to say a lot of it in the future, but heaven is a literal place. It isn't a figment of some imagination. It isn't a tweak of some dial to some parallel universe. Uh, it It is a place that will descend in the future. It contains a city, even now with real streets and real buildings and and real gates, real travel, real food, uh, real people. Jesus Christ said, I am going away to prepare a place 
for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And soon and very soon, we are going to that place. The average Christian has come to view heaven as some sort of nebulous, wispy, cloudy thing where we're going to strum our harps or some palace courtyard where we're just going to stand around forever and and, and wonder how we will not be bored to death and we're afraid to say it. We're afraid to say it. We don't look forward to heaven because we really don't know much about it. And yet the record of Scripture is filled with so much of it and we're only going to touch on it in chapters 4 and 5 and then the remainder of it when we get to chapters 21 and 22 in the next millennium, I'm sure. Well, this is a real place with real gates, real streets. We're even told the pavement is translucent gold, which means we're going to be walking. We're going to feel it. We're going to touch it. This is, this is a place above the atmosphere, beyond the troposphere, beyond the stratosphere, and beyond the mesosphere and the ionosphere, way beyond the galaxies is... This place, the throne of God, who is both seated and omnipresent. And the angels whisk their way between heaven and earth, traveling at speeds we cannot imagine. This is the place where Christ ascended. This is the place he has prepared for his bride. This is for real. And so, so Christ says, come up, John. Come up here to heaven. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne. Look, I I saw a throne standing in heaven with one seated on the throne. Mark this. This is obviously, as we will see, God the Father. He is seated, distinguished from the Lamb of God, the Son of God in chapter 5, which we'll see later. Being seated is a posture describing the position of an emperor who is currently reigning. We use the term today to talk about a politician who is seated. He has a seat on the floor of Congress. If a politician is seated, he is in office. If an incumbent loses an election, he is unseated. So this is a reference to the sovereign, ruling, directing power of God. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, he is not resting. He is reigning. And his throne is going to appear over and over and over again throughout this revelation. In fact, you could circle the word throne, as I have done, 12 times in chapter 4 alone. 13, when you include the thrones of the elders, specifically referencing then these 12, the throne of God. So John sees God the Father seated on the throne, but the figure of God the Father is lost in this dazzling display of light that surrounds the throne. See, one of the troubles, and I'm going to deal with this probably later, that I have with people who talk about heaven saying they've gone there and they've come back is they use words that we can easily understand. Uh, They talk about everything but what John saw. In fact, he has difficulty uh, describing it. He has no vocabulary to describe the brilliant light surrounding the throne of God. And so he will use words like the appearance of or like. 
He stumbles over the inadequacy of language. It's kind of like asking a, a young man who is head over heels in love with a young lady to describe her. Well, you know, uh, really, I'm totally, like, uh, amazing. It's incredible. She's better than, you know, it's just like the beginning. Wow, it's, you know. And you think, thanks, that's great. I, I, I got a picture now in my head. John says, this is like, you know, as close as I can get to describing what I saw. Now notice in your text there are two precious gems uh, referenced. I, I think the first is more than likely the diamond, this crystal clear description that will appear again in Revelation 21. He says, around the throne here I saw one whose appearance, verse 3, the appearance of Jasper, probably more than likely this translucent gem Uh, different to John in the first century than what we commonly understand today. In other words, you have the shining, flashing facets of the glory of God compared to the brilliance of light reflecting off a diamond, reflecting all the colors of the spectrum. The next stone, carnelian, I think it ought to be translated sardius, it's, it's the fiery deep red stone. In fact, the Greek word gives us the name of the city, sardis, What's interesting, by the way, is that these two stones were the first and last gemstones on the breastpiece of the high priest. They represented the firstborn and the lastborn sons of Jacob, as if to symbolize that even though the wrath of God is about to be unleashed on planet earth, primarily upon Israel, God's covenant with the sons of Israel will not be destroyed. He will keep his promise to ethnic Israel, to the nation. John further notes in verse 3 that the throne is surrounded by a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. In other words, the color of the rainbow Uh, perhaps due to all the other colors flashing from the throne, came across to him as predominantly green, and he sees the full circle. We don't know if it's going over the throne or if it's going this way, around the throne, from top to bottom. By the way, even though these descriptions are difficult to understand or even picture in our minds, they are not trivial decorations thrown into the vision. A rainbow would immediately draw your mind to what? It would draw your mind to the illusion of God's grace seen in his promise to all of humanity in the covenant, signed specifically to Noah and the rainbow to literally of all of, of humanity. There at the throne of God, you have this wonderful reminder, even in the presence of the terror of his, of his glory, you have the reminder that God's mercy is as great as his majesty. So the first thing that John is arrested by is this magnificent, brilliant light show emanating from the throne of sovereign God. And, and I walk away from this particular part of it with, with the confidence that God's throne of glory is active at this very moment. For every believer, this is the testimony of God's power and his, his reign. His throne is secure. It is permanent. It is immovable. It is enduring. It is unchangeable. It is impartial. It is eternal. No matter what you see on CNN, no matter what you read in the newspapers or watch on 
television, no matter how sad or glad or fearful or troubling, everything takes place under the shadow of this great sovereign God. That's been 60 years since Pentecost when John sees this vision. One could easily wonder, along with this last living apostle, hey, I, I thought that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church I I thought we were on the winning side I thought we would be a worldwide movement by now I thought we would influence Caesar and, and shape culture Instead, we're being persecuted, and and, and Caesar is silencing our witness, it seems. Roman culture is more corrupt than when we first delivered the gospel to it. And the last living apostle who sees the vision is exiled on an island, expecting to die. His voice all but snuffed out. Here's the message to the church. Don't mistake what you see with what is. Don't evaluate the power of the church by CNN. Don't determine the advancement of the church and the power of God on the basis of a corrupting culture. God is not idle. He is active. He is not unseated. In fact, he's not even up for re-election, right? He is not absent. He is not distant. He is not forgetful. He is not uncaring. He is unveiling. He is orchestrating the events of human history. A.W. Tozer wrote it this way, to regain her lost power, a church simply must see heaven opened and have a transforming vision of God. Not the utilitarian God who's having a run of popularity whose chief aim seems to be to bring man success. The God we must learn to know is the majesty in the heavens. He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth who stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain who bringeth out his starry host by number and calleth them all by names through the greatness of his power. (laughs) Heaven is not a state of mind, my friends. The throne of heaven is not a figment of our imagination used as a crutch for some weary soul. Heaven is a real place. God is seated on a real throne, and that's a true comfort and assurance for the weary soul. Here's here's comfort. Soon, and very soon, we are going to see the king. That's our assurance. I close with this conversation Pastor and freelance writer Mark Buchanan tells about a conversation he had with a young philosophy student in his early 20s. Mark had officiated a wedding on a beautiful day in the sunshine coast of British Columbia, and at the reception, the student stayed behind and asked if if he really believed all that religious stuff he just spouted in the service. Mark writes, I said, I did. He smirked. I asked him what he believed. He said, well, I tried your religion for a while and I found it just a burden to carry. You know what I figured out? He said, life justifies living. 
Life is its own reward and explanation. I don't need some pie-in-the-sky mirage to keep me going. This life has enough pressure and mystery and adventure in it to not need anything else to account for it. Life justifies living. Good, Mark said. He responded. I believe you. Today, here and now, feel the warmth of the breeze, listen to the laughter of these people, smell the, the shrimp cooking, look at the blueness of the sky. Yes, today, I believe you. What a superb philosophy. Life justifies living. Bravo. Only, he went on, I'm thinking about someone I met last, Feb- last February, Richard. Richard was 44. He looked 60. He'd been living on the streets since he was 12. A junkie. Now dying of AIDS. Last time I saw Richard was on a gray, rainy day in winter. I bought him a bus ticket and put him on the bus. He was going to his mother's home in Calgary. He hadn't spoken with her in almost 15 years, but he was hoping he could go home to die. Almost incoherent, he sputtered, I wish I'd never been born. My whole life has been a mistake. My whole life has been misery. I'm thinking about Richard. He went on. And I'm also thinking about Ernie. Ernie was a man on the rise. While he was in his 20s, he was already vice president of a thriving national business. Tough-minded, hard-driving, prodigiously skilled, hugely ambitious. He was a superb athlete, a natural at any sport. He had a beautiful wife. They were unable to have children of their own, so they adopted four three from Africa and one from Mexico. On the day the fourth adoption became final, Ernie got the results back from some medical tests he had undergone to account for some dizziness, blurring of eyesight, tingling in his hands. The test came back with stunning news. Ernie had multiple sclerosis. Yes, I am thinking about Richard and Ernie, and I have a question about your philosophy. How exactly do I explain to them that life justifies living? The young philosophy student had no response. He said he'd have to think about it and get back to me. I gave him my address and asked him to write it down and then write me when he came up with something. I've never heard from him and never will because life does not justify living. Eternity does. Eternity justifies living. And because we know the God of eternity, who even today sits upon his sovereign throne. And we await his summons. He didn't come before I preach, maybe before I end. I don't know. Come on up here. He summons us up. So we can sing with confidence. In fact, even more so than the early church that would breathe the truth of these kinds of lyrics, we too can sing today, soon, and now it's even sooner. We are going to see the King. 